and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and explores how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and in today's episode, the very first of 2023, I am joined by Dr. Lisa Morton, a lecturer in applied psychology, to talk about healing hearts and minds, a holistic approach to coping well with congenital heart disease, her new book, which is to be published later this week. Lisa, it's brilliant to have you on the show. Thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. And before we get started, we're back in business after the Christmas holidays. How was your time away? It was good, yeah. Quite a, a nice relaxing break, but back into to marking now. So That's uh, the, the glamour of, of marking. Absolutely. <laughs> now, let's talk about Healing Hearts and Minds. It's set to be published on Friday the 13th of January by Oxford University Press. What's the book about? So this book is the first book to focus on the psychological and emotional impact of living with a heart condition from birth, otherwise known as congenital heart disease. Congenital heart disease is the most common um, birth defect internationally, so it affects one in 125 live births. And for the first time, there's now more um, adults than children with CHD because of great advances in medical and surgical care. Um, 90% of babies will now survive into adulthood, and that's compared with only about 20% back in the 1940s. So We've got these, this amazing medical success. Uh, however, there is it's not a curable condition. So lifelong um, medical care is now indicated for this growing population. And um, there is a kind of psychological and emotional impact that we feel has been missed. Um, so we know now from the literature that around the kind of lifetime prevalence of anxiety, depression and PTSD is about 50% for adults. So this is a kind of unmet need that we hope to meet with this, um, or at least partially meet to, with this book and raise awareness of. Now tell me about your own experiences with the congenital heart disease, because I know this was something that you were born with. I mean, congenital heart disease is a very heterogeneous group. It's a lot of different kinds of, of cardiac conditions that you can be born with. I was born with something called congenital heart block, which means the electrical signal in the heart is um, doesn't kind of go through the heart. So okay. when I was born back in 1978, a while ago now, I basically wouldn't have survived. And I was taken from Bells Hill Hospital to York Hill Hospital in Glasgow, which I'm sure you're familiar with, although that's changed recently, but the old hospital with pink windows um, when I was uh, yeah, just an infant. And at four days old, because I would have kind of died anyway, they, the pioneers there decided to try to fit me with an external pacemaker. So that was kind of box beside the bed and, and that kind of turned me from blue to pink and when that works they decided to try in a world first at the time and um, to fit a cardiac pacemaker so in those days they were quite big quite bulky for a little tiny baby but they didn't really have any choice so so they gave it a go anyway so that was by thoracotomy so they kind of break the ribs and, and they put it right onto the heart so the leads um, sit on the heart so um, it's been a very tenuous journey by the time I was um, just seven years old, I'd had five thoracotomies um, because the devices kept breaking. Um, I just remember being in and out of York Hill Hospital all the time. A physicist would come from Glasgow University and show everybody how to um, move the, the heart rate up and down on the device with this big magnet and everyone would have a shot. So I remember just spending hours counting holes in the ceiling. So yeah, it was, it was quite an unusual experience, but I was always very grateful to be alive and aware of the kind of miracle of medicine and science. 
So those early pacemakers were set at a fixed rate though. So um, until I was 12 years old, my heart rate couldn't go up or down. So that was quite physically limiting. And yeah, I can remember being desperate to do dance lessons or mm -hmm. horse riding or pee at school and not being able to do any of those things. Um, kind of like just watching when everyone else was um, at sports day and things. So um, although I looked normal uh, and there was this kind of hidden, I suppose, disability, although I would have hated to call that at the time. So yeah, it's it's affected every part of my life, I would say. I did get a more variable rate pacemaker when I was in my early teens, which was great. I mean, I could be more active, but I also needed open heart surgery at, around that time too. And I can just remember around that phase of adolescence, um, it just being almost relentless. I had, I don't know how many surgeries um, and trying to kind of sit exams and even sometimes having kind of heart monitor on and trying to kind of be a normal teenager, but kind of navigating this. Mm. So I was always aware of the lack of emotional and psychological support and understanding. Mm -hmm. um, and that really motivated me to, I suppose, study psychology um, and then explore that myself to try and find some of those kind of answers and make sense of that. How does the condition affect you now you're an adult? Obviously, I every heartbeat I have has and have always had has been dependent on this cardiac device. So I'm now my 11th pacemaker. It becomes a bit more complicated as I get older because although the pacemakers are so much better and so much more physiologically responsive, I mean, if you think about the advances in even computers from the late 70s to now, mm. um, and it's, it's basically, it's gone from being a little battery to being a, a little mini computer, um, so lots of things have improved. However, because um, I've had so many, um, a lot of the hardware has been left in there. Like all the, the kind of baby leads are still on my heart. So there's quite a lot of scar tissue and it just makes it more complex finding space to, to fit a new device. So I require specialist care. Okay. And that's not always understood, particularly by non-specialist medical professionals. So I've always had to really advocate for that and fight for mm. that care, particularly since adulthood. So that's kind of been an extra burden and, and has led to quite a lot of advocacy work for this population. So, I mean, on a day-to-day -day basis, I live as normal a life as possible. I always have done. I do kind of get quite tired. I've always had sort of chronic fatigue and I kind of manage that by pacing myself. And that's something we talk about in the book, but I work, obviously I work part-time. I've always kind of tried to navigate the obstacles um, and have a a teenage son, um, I'm married, I, I live as full a life as possible. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's there in the back of, um, of my mind. Most recently, I had my device fitted four years ago and I had to spend a month, two months, I had to wait to get the specialist kind of care that I needed. They had to kind of send up equipment from London. I had to wait until there was a, a cardiothoracic surgeon available and a month of that I spent in my local hospital during the hottest summer on record so um and obviously during my son's holidays so it does impact the whole family and and yeah it's it's something I kind of just have to manage. You mentioned your advocacy work there can you talk a wee bit more about that? So I've been involved in a lot of voluntary work particularly over the last 10 years um, because around about that time I um, encountered life-threatening um, kind of issues accessing the specialist care I need during A&E and, and there was a series of issues that I had at that time which basically once I was better culminated in me submitting a petition to the Scottish Parliament asking for national healthcare standards for CHD, improved resourcing and also psychological support because um, I became aware after reporting kind of on my own experiences that I was far from alone and that 
care for the growing adult population really had to improve. Because, um, I mean, it's, it's hard enough trying to navigate heart condition from cradle to grave without having to, to fight for the specialist care you need and without having to worry about that as well when you're dependent on care you want to know it's I want to know it's there if my pacemaker breaks so I asked for those healthcare standards and following that I ended up being asked to sit on various health boards to to produce them so that can't tell you how many hours of meetings I've sat in trying to get change in the NHS is kind of yeah it's quite slow it can be very frustrating um, but eventually we did get the national healthcare standards um, designated by the national service division of the NHS and Healthcare Improvement Scotland have now taken on developing um, national standards, but for local care, because a lot of the issues occur like with local care, so mm-hmm. like with GPs or a so we're still working away on them. And I also sit on the Scottish Obstetric Cardiac Network, who that network is tasked with improving care for maternal health, because there was quite higher than expected rate of death from cardiac problems for mothers during and after pregnancy, which is obviously concerning. So yeah, I've got I've been involved in a lot of advocacy work. And my research is, is very much over the years kind of moved towards um, looking at the psychological impact of living with a lifelong medical condition. So that has led to what I've termed psychologically informed medicine because um, I'm very passionate about improving medical care using what we know in psychology, but kind of sharing that with medical colleagues um, and working together to use what we know now about medical trauma to try to mitigate risk and promote protective factors. You tell us a wee bit about medical trauma then, Lisa. What do we mean by that term and how can it affect people in different ways? There's been a lot of, I guess, discussion over the last few years and more and more awareness about trauma-informed practice and what you probably heard of adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. And yeah. Yeah. Um, there's been a lot of kind of, I suppose, government policy within that and um, I think one of the things that's been missed in that is medical trauma. So that's not really been spoken about anywhere near as much. So what I mean by medical trauma is, for example, being a small child. And if, if you look at kind of cardiac problems, because um, obviously I know more about that. For me, that was things like my pacemaker suddenly breaking. And then obviously that, that was life threatening. So I can just remember Kind of vomiting, turning blue, being wrapped in a big towel, being blue lighted to hospital, being surrounded by a whole bunch of um, medics, very concerned, being kind of taken by people um, in green scrubs away from my mum through big kind of plastic doors, um, and then requiring really quite serious surgery and, and waking up and coming around from that. And so that's what I mean by medical trauma. And then on top of that, you've got layers of things like you know having to have stitches removed, having a new scar. Um, having to have blood taken, waking up on a ventilator, so all kinds of things. And for those of us who have long-term conditions, particularly from childhood, there can be lots of risk factors that can add to the difficulties of that. So, for example, medical barriers to early attachment. So I spent the first six years of my life in an incubator in ICU. My mum didn't hold me until I already had two scars and I was six weeks old. So, and we know that there's a mental health impact on parents. Obviously, having a really mm-hmm. poorly baby um, can lead to, you know, we know, I think PTSD rates for parents of children with cardiac problems are about 15 to 20%. So, there's lots of factors that come together in what, what I refer to as a sort of perfect storm. Um, and we know that early first three years is really important in terms of lifelong mental health. So, Um, I think there's lots of things that we could do. And and some of the pieces of work that I've done in terms of research have been like, 
looking at the hospital gown. You know, why do we have to wear this exposing, embarrassing, um, you know, backless gown with, you know, our bum hanging out <laughs> um, at the most vulnerable point in our life? Yeah. And in some ways, you know, that it sounds quite kind of like, yeah, that's that seems ridiculous. But see, when you actually think about it in terms of, we know that feeling powerless and vulnerable increased risk of developing PTSD following trauma. So if you think about the worst thing you could put somebody in when they're in a traumatic situation to make them feel more powerless, to make them feel more vulnerable. Um, and that's what our studies have shown. And I've also kind of been working on developing a measure of psychological safety, because that's almost like the flip side. So instead of waiting until measuring people when they're traumatized, let's actually kind of up their feelings of psychological safety mm -hmm. so we can um, mitigate risk instead. So yeah, I hope that kind of answers your question. <laughs> you mentioned that healing hearts and minds, there hasn't been anything quite like it written before. Why is that the case? There's a lot of reasons why. We're medically a very new population. Tracy and I are both kind of first generation survivors. It's quite unusual. I mean, the reason that, that Tracy and I bonded so quickly, despite being 3,000 miles apart, is because we were both mental health professionals as well as first generation survivors. And she was the first person I'd ever found who um, had gone into a kind of career in mental health and had the same kind of background as me. Of course, this is Tracy Levecki who co-wrote the book Tracy with you. Tracy who co-wrote the book with me, yes. So she's a licensed clinical social worker over in Connecticut. And we met online through our advocacy efforts. So, yeah, I guess I think that there's quite a lot of messaging from birth when you're born with a kind of as a miracle baby that you're lucky to be alive and that you should be grateful and of course we are um, and also that you're kind of brave and determined and all that kind of but while all of that is you know possibly true and there is a lot of positive adaptation that can kind of stop us from talking about the more difficult aspects of that I think um, and kind of create a sort of veil of silence around well I better not complain I better not say this because I've already been a bit of a burden to my parents I've already taken enough from the NHS I've already so and these are all things that I've very much felt so you kind of stay silent and say well I'm just lucky to be here so yeah I had some really good therapy in my early 30s as part of my own training as a psychologist and that really helped to validate my own um, experiences and that I was allowed you know a, a psychological and emotional response to these experiences which was quite liberating for me mm -hmm. and something that I wanted to then kind of share I guess. So who's the audience for this book then Lisa who's it aimed at? So the book is aimed at the whole kind of congenital heart community um, and beyond I think that there are you know it, it would be useful for anybody living with um, a long-term health condition particularly from childhood um, but predominantly it's written for other people who have lived with a lifelong heart condition um, we have acknowledged in the group, this, um, sorry, in the book, this is a very heterogeneous population. Some people will have one surgery as a child and not require anything else. Other people will be more like myself and Tracy and they've been kind of back and forward throughout life. Um, some people aren't diagnosed till adulthood as well. So um, we hope there's something in there for everyone. We've also got a chapter at the end that focuses on loved ones and healthcare providers. Um, so kind of how they can better support people in their lives. But we would hope they would also read the entire book um, and we kind of hope that the book also acts as a bit of an advocate for us too just to raise awareness and um, this is a hidden population uh, a lot of people 
which is kind of strange when you think about it as being the most common congenital birth defect. But and whenever I mention this, people will come to me and they'll say, oh, yeah, you know, I've got an aunt or a cousin or, you know, so everybody knows somebody. Um, but it doesn't really get a lot of awareness. And, and when kind of you compare it with other childhood illnesses, which is something that we are really trying to address with the book as well. Tell me about the process of actually writing the book. How did you find that? And how did you and Tracy divide who was doing what? It's really very organic. So when Tracy and I kind of first met, Tracy had contacted me because she was doing a talk in America for the American Adult Congenital Heart Association on body image. And she'd come across photographs online of that were from a Scarred for Life photography exhibition um, that I did with Caroline Wilson and Jenny Kumar. And that was back in... 2015. Um, so you might remember that it was kind of it went from Kelvin Grove Art Gallery to um, yes. Golden Jubilee, Scottish yeah. Parliament. So she'd found those images and she'd contacted me about using some of them. And we just kind of became friends from there and started to talk about the lack of resource, how there was just a lack of information out there about CHD and the emotional and psychological impact. We spoke about our own struggles um, and how lonely it is and how isolating it is um, kind of growing up with that. Um, and how, you know, one minute you're maybe on a cardiac ward with other kids and the next, you know, kind of week you can be back at school with other children who've got no idea of what you've been through and you've got no language to explain that. So we both kind of said that we'd thought about writing the book and, and we ended up comparing outlines and they were practically identical. So right. um, we just put together, we thought about it and we agreed to do it and we didn't really quite get around to it. But during lockdown, I was in the shielding group. So... I kind of had more time in my hands than usual. So it was during that point that we actually put together the proposal, kind of just sent it off to various publishers, got a deal with Oxford University Press, and we kind of set up a shared document online, which was brilliant. And it meant that because actually with the time difference, it worked quite well, because I would get up <laughs> see what Tracy had written and then go to my bed and she would get up and see what I had written. Um, and we just really worked really well together um, it's just something that we were both really passionate about and I think mm -hmm. we brought different skills to it and we've both been thinking about it for so many years uh, that it was just something that needed to come out um, mm -hmm. and was really cathartic as well. The book's been available on Kindle for a wee while now what's the response been like from the people who have read it? We've had a fantastic response from the congenital heart community and beyond um, even when we were writing the book we had so many people asking us when's it coming out and um, we'd put out a call for testimonials because we wanted it really to, to belong to the whole community and to represent the diversity. So we had more than, I mean, the book is peppered with more than, um, I think, 40 people's testimonials and accounts of their experiences. Uh, so that kind of brings it to life. And I think the fact that we got so many just shows the kind of enthusiasm for it. Um, and I've also heard from people, you know, from, I did a podcast for Heart Kids in Australia. I've heard from and people in the Netherlands who asked for an early copy of the book to send to their health minister um, because they were concerned about changes to care over there, which we, of course, provided. Sweden, um, I've been invited over to Dublin. There's people just in America, of course, um, in contact with Tracy. So we've been overwhelmed with um, the level of support, um, which has been fantastic. And, and that's also included from, from leading doctors in the field, um, all of them have, have been like kind of really thanks for providing this because it's an issue for them. Obviously, kind of anxiety and depression and PTSD, if this comes up with, with their 
own patients, then that can impact on adherence to medical advice. And that's something that they kind of struggle to offer support for. So and we hope that that, that will really help. We also did a podcast for Global Arch, which is um, a charity that works with um, low and uh, middle income countries. So, so that was that was good. And, and I guess it's, it's about kind of the book does provide a kind of a low cost option for countries where people potentially couldn't afford therapy, but also where there's a lot of stigma now still remaining, um, not only about mental health problems, but actually about having congenital heart defects mm-hmm. you know in some countries it's still frowned upon to get a scar because you won't be worthy of being married so there's a lot of work that we need to do so we really hope to kind of yeah kind of tackle that I think that I did a piece of work looking at again the media coverage of people with long-term health conditions during COVID and ableism and the messaging mm-hmm. and that is still I think something that's very rife you know even within kind of our own country, and um, when you kind of think about some of the headlines about herd, herd immunity and things, which were quite scary. And I guess when people, as soon as anybody said that, that so many people had died, the first question was, yeah, but did they have a long-term condition? And for people like myself, that was really quite, yeah, marginalising. Yeah. So um, that's something that, that, yeah, we hope the book will help to address as well. Do you have any plans to meet with Tracy? Because I know that you haven't actually met with each other face-to-face yet. I would love to meet Tracy um, and uh, vice versa. I hope to go over to Connecticut at some point. Um, I think she's only an hour's drive from New York, so that would be amazing. Um, and she hasn't been to Scotland. So, yeah, we do plan on visiting each other at some point and hope that will be possible. What happens next then, Lisa? So our main priority just now is making sure that we can get the book into the hands of as many people as possible that need it. And also that it acts, like I said, as an advocate to raise awareness more generally. Um, I also hope that it helps to promote more psychologically informed medical care. So I've been invited to talk to various audiences, like I said, from the Netherlands to Sweden to, to Dublin. Um, and the book's not even out yet. So I envisage that it's going to be a really busy year um, between that and, and I've also been writing various articles and kind of media coverage and things as well, which is all fantastic. And it's, it's really great to see the enthusiasm for it. And so I think we'll be busy doing that over the next while. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on to the show today. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and I really appreciate you sharing your story with us and the listeners and very best of luck with the book when it's published at the end of the week. Thank you. Thanks so much. I'd also like to thank everyone for tuning into this episode and I hope you can join us again very soon when we'll be talking with another member of the GC community about their research, their career and a lot more. The views expressed in the Common Good podcast are those of the participant and don't necessarily represent the views of Glasgow Caledonian University. Please subscribe to this podcast. You can get every episode sent straight to your listening device by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and everywhere else. So until the next time, I've been Craig Telfer and this has been the Common Good Podcast. Mm -hmm.